Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 371 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17, Commander... Eugene Cernan. This episode is a continuation of Gene Cernan's biography from episode number 187, and it was entitled Apollo 10 Lunar Module Pilot Eugene Cernan. That episode was released on November 30th, 2016, and is in the archive now. On episode 187, I stopped the biography after Apollo 10. So this episode, 371, will complete Gene's biography. I had originally planned not to do another biography on Gene, but his Apollo 17 experiences just couldn't be left out, so I decided to go ahead. Additionally, episode 187 was recorded almost five years ago. So, on this episode, I will briefly cover Gene's early life again, briefly. But if you want the complete coverage of Gene's early life, I highly recommend listening to episode 187 first. To do that, you can search for Space Rocket History Archive, and you should be able to find it there, or go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and listen to it there under the Archive tab. Now, on to episode 371. Uh, Very quickly, I flew in space three times, had a chance to walk around the world a couple times on Gemini 9. Uh, That was a pretty exciting time because that was the second time an American had ever been out in space outside of a spacecraft and had to devote a couple chapters to that because I'm probably lucky I'm even back here to talk about it today. Went to the moon on Apollo 10. we were sort of the pathfinders for Apollo 11. We took the lunar lander, only second crew ever to go to the moon, and uh, we came close. We came down within about 47,000 feet. Had a few trials and tribulations on that flight as well. Uh, and uh, pa- painted that line in the sky for Apollo 11 and uh, for Neil Armstrong and his crew to follow. It wasn't quite that easy for him, but at least we made it a little easier. It might have been. Another big part, of, although I didn't fly this mission of my book, is uh, backing up Alan Shepard. Uh, on Apollo 14. Uh, Just 10 years earlier, I was a young naval aviator, young lieutenant in the Navy on the West Coast, uh, just back from a couple cruises, and Alan Shepard was uh, was headed into space, now become obviously an American icon, but he was our answer to the the Soviets. He was uh, our answer to Sputnik, to Gagarin, and he was our first steps into space. And uh, I watched him like every other American did in, uh, in awe, and indeed in envy as an aviator, knowing that by the time I was qualified to do that kind of thing, all the pioneering would be over. And lo and behold, uh, I found myself in the space program not too many years after that, and uh, within, within a period of 10 years, almost to the month, I was standing next to that same Alan Shepard the night before he went to the moon on Apollo 17 with the spotlight glistening off his uh, 38-story Saturn V. Uh, I was standing there, having already flown twice, walked in space, and gone to the moon. And Alan had a grand total of some 16 minutes in space from his first Mercury Redstone flight. Uh, But yet there I was, 10 years later, uh, 
as Alan Shepard's equal, and it took me those two flights, quite frankly, to bring him up to his level. But <laughs> things can change quickly in life. I ended up uh, uh, going to the moon, and, uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to to get the command of Apollo 17, and it turned out to be the last flight to the moon. We knew it would be before we left, and uh, lived on the moon in a valley surrounded by mountains on three sides that are higher than a Grand, Grand Canyon is deep. Found my own little Camelot for three days uh, with a geologist scientist who was my crewmate and a very worthy crewmate, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, an experience that uh, uh, in those years that uh, isn't comparable to anything you might imagine. And uh, when I stood on the surface of the moon and uh, and look back at the earth, stood on the surface of the moon in sunlight, look at the earth surrounded by the blackest black that you can conceive in your mind, a paradox, but on the moon is truth. And I could watch, look at the world from pole to pole and across oceans and continents, and it, you know, we're, we're, we're in a bland environment of the moon where everything is gray, and there's the multicolored blues of the oceans and whites of the snow and the clouds. Watch it rotate on a mysterious axis you couldn't see, but you knew must be there. Watch it move through the heavens, through this infinite blackness of time and space with purpose and with logic. I came to the conclusion it was just too beautiful to have happened by accident. There must be something we don't know. And I felt very privileged to be there at that moment in time and, and tried to gra grasp subconsciously or consciously everything I could out of that moment. Eugene A. Cernan was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 14, 1934. His father was Slovak and his mother was Czechoslovakian. Cernan grew up in the suburban towns of Bellwood and Maywood, Illinois. He attended Provisio East High School in Maywood and graduated in 1952. After high school, he entered Purdue University, where he became a member of Phi Gamma Delta Fraternity. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering in 1956 and was commissioned as a U.S. Navy officer through the Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps at Purdue. Upon graduation, he entered Navy flight training. He was assigned to attack squadrons 26 and 112 at the Miramar, California Naval Air Station and subsequently attended the Naval Postgraduate School. He became a naval aviator flying FJF-4 Fury, then A-4 Skyhawk jets. He logged more than 5,000 hours flying time with more than 4,800 hours in jet aircraft and over 200 jet aircraft carrier landings. He also earned a Master of Science in Aeronautical Engineering from the Naval Postgraduate School in 1963. Cernan was chosen among the third group of astronauts selected by NASA in October 1963 to participate in projects Gemini and Apollo. Cernan was first assigned the pilot duties for Gemini 9A which included a very dangerous spacewalk. It was the second American EVA, the third ever spacewalk, but overexertion caused by a lack of limb restraints prevented testing of the astronaut maneuvering unit and forced the early termination of the spacewalk. Here's how Gene described it. Dangling from a from a from a from a tether from a 125 foot tether behind a, a spacecraft traveling around this Earth at 18,000 miles an hour, not knowing whether you're all fogged up in your spacesuit, not knowing whether you're going to get be able to get back inside that Gemini spacecraft. Cernan became well liked by the staff and astronauts at Mission Control. In fact, Flight Director Gene Krantz wrote that Cernan was his favorite because of his carefree and jovial attitude unabashed patriotism, and his close personal relationship with the flight controllers. Cernan was selected for the lunar module pilot position on the backup crew for Apollo 7, although that flight carried no lunar module. Standard crew rotation put him in place as the lunar module pilot on Apollo 10 the final dress rehearsal for the first Apollo lunar landing 
on May 18th through the 26th, 1969. During the Apollo 10 mission, Cernan and his commander, Tom Stafford, piloted the lunar module Snoopy in a lunar orbit to within 8.5 nautical miles of the lunar surface and successfully executed every phase of a lunar landing up to final powered descent. This provided NASA planners with critical knowledge of technical systems and lunar gravitational conditions to enable Apollo 11 to land on the moon two months later. However, at one point there was a loss of control in the lunar module. This is how Gene described the experience. Between Tom Stafford and myself, we were, we were simulating the staging on the surface of the moon that Neil would have to, would have to work. And uh, we had a guidance switch in the wrong position. And we went part of my first over T-Kettle. Uh, it, several times the lunar horizon went down this way through a window and that way through a window. And because it was a, basically a test flight in preparing for the landing, we, had, we were on box, open mic. Not only did Mission Control here, but the whole world. This was the beginning of the media being able to hear live what was going on up there. Live. Live, live. And, you know, we took color television, too, for the first time and won an Emmy for taking a picture of that Earth that, that you took a picture of. We put it on television. Anyway, so Tom Stafford, being an outstanding uh, Air Force pilot, that was hard to say. <laughs> remember, they were all naval aviators. Just remember that. Yeah, I was able to take control manually, and we, we docked it, went on, and through the rest of the mission. But during that open box, when it was, it happened so quick, and I just said to Tom, golly, what the heck happened? Or words to that effect. <laughs> now, Tom Stafford is from Oklahoma. Anyone from Oklahoma? Do you mumble? I mean, Tom, I met him. Tom, you met Tom. Did you understand what he said? He was speaking English now. <laughs> I know. Well, you did understand. Well, Tom bubbles. And by the way, Tom flew the Apollo Soviet flight and learned to speak Russian. I would love to understand Russian and see what he sounded like in Russian. Tom bubbles. It's Oklahomsky. And, and I know what he said, but no one else understood what he said. So if you think golly gee whiz was bad, you should have heard what he said. <laughs> and there's only one person who really knows at this point time. Anyway. Apollo 10 holds the record for the highest speed attained by any crewed vehicle at 39,897 kilometers per hour or 24,791 miles per hour during its return from the moon on May 26, 1969. Even after the successful missions of Apollo 10, 11, 12, and the near disaster of Apollo 13, interest in the moon missions began to fade. Now much of the general public responded to moon trips with boredom, and when the public became disinterested, politicians did too. Federal budget cuts poured gloom all over NASA. Then there were changes at the very top of the program. Fernavon Brown left to take a job in private industry. And MSC director Bob Gilruth departed soon after. Gilruth was replaced by the competent Chris Kraft, who had always been one of the driving forces behind U.S. space exploration. Not long after Chris moved into his new office, he called Cernan and gave him some fatherly advice and partly a warning. Chris told Gene to put away his fighter pilot's white silk scarf and just bring his Apollo 17 crew home alive. Chris said if Gene encountered something he didn't like out there and decided not to land, he would back him 100%. Now, these comments reflected the feelings of a number of NASA managers who couldn't shake the ghost of Apollo 13 and were turning conservative with the shared belief that Apollo 17 was a gamble they did not really need to take. 
The United States had beaten the Soviets already, had ten moonwalkers, and had brought back rocks and pictures and stories. Skylab and a joint Soviet-American orbital adventure were being planned, and the distant future belonged to the shuttle. So why risk three more astronauts? Hadn't they done everything on the moon that needed to be done? Gene tried to ignore these statements, but worried that the naysayers might gain enough support to actually cancel Apollo 17. He decided he was not going to let that happen. To Gene, this was no time to be conservative. He was determined to complete his mission and come home again. If NASA was looking for anything else, they were looking in the wrong place. Now, what is not commonly known is, at this point, Gene Cernan took upon himself to be the cheerleader and promoter of Apollo 17, in addition to his astronaut duties. Gene was determined to keep the country's space banner bright because Apollo 17 would cap a historic undertaking in which all Americans could take rightful pride. Cernan's most useful tool was the press, and he dutifully mined the contacts he had made among correspondents over the years. If someone wanted an interview, Gene was ready to talk. A photograph? Just tell him where and when. Cernan treasured printer's ink and broadcast time like gold to get out the message that this mission was going to be something special. Gene talked so much that Ron's wife, Jan Evans, appropriately gave him the nickname of Mouth. Cernan grew tired of being compared to the tail of the dog, the last thing to come over the fence. So he met with as many engineers and production workers as possible to spread the gospel according to Cernan, saying, quote, Apollo 17 is not the end, but rather the beginning of a whole new era in the history of mankind. You people who are putting this together are important. We are in a unique moment in history, so let's make the last one the best, end quote. He preached until he was hoarse and probably bored poor Ron and Jack to tears as they heard the same words over and over. The job became as much a political campaign trail as moon landing training. As Cernan climbed on chairs at parties or factory tables and talked to whomever would listen, trying to boost morale and confidence. He wanted everyone who made this amazing feat possible to know that what they were doing was special and that the crew wanted it to be special to them too. Apollo 17 was not just another serving of the same old thing, for they were going places never before seen by man. They were all part of a grand tradition of exploration that would yield results so astonishing and far-reaching that generations might pass before the significance of what they had done would be totally understood. Gene's task to keep everyone focused wasn't easy because over 13,000 Cape workers had lost their jobs over the past several years and another 900 would get pink slips as soon as Apollo 17 blasted off. Many of the Grumman troops literally worked themselves into unemployment when the lunar module went out the door at Bethpage, and more would be gone at the moment of liftoff. But Gene was successful in his task. Apollo 17 was not canceled. The workers responded with a dedication bordering on ferocity, proving their professionalism by making this flight one for the record books. The last but best determination galvanized them all, and Gene Cernan and his wife Barbara should be commended for their efforts on Apollo 17.
Another interesting thing happened between Apollos 10 and 17. Gene Cernan turned down the opportunity to walk on the moon as a lunar module pilot of Apollo 16, instead preferring to risk missing a flight for the opportunity to command his own mission. Uh, my big choice, and I cover this in the book, I turned on an opportunity to walk on the moon in Apollo 16 uh, because somehow, and maybe it's that fighter pilot, attack pilot, pilot spirit in me, I, I, uh, I wanted my own command, a command I wasn't able to have because I chose to go on an astronaut program and, and leave my standard path, uh, career path in the Navy, and uh, I was lucky enough to to get the command of Apollo 17. Cernan next moved back into the Apollo rotation as commander of the backup crew of Apollo 14 with Ronald Evans and Joe Engel, putting him in position with normal crew rotation to command his own crew on Apollo 17. Of course, as I mentioned before, Engel was replaced by geologist Smith who Cernan did not approve of at first, but, to his credit, Cernan eventually came to have a positive evaluation of Smith's abilities. He concluded that Smith was an outstanding lunar module pilot, well deserving of his seat on Apollo 17. We had a crew, Ron Evans was a naval aviator, he a Vietnam veteran, and then this was the last flight of Apollo, and we had a lunar geologist in the program. And uh, it was determined by others that, a, that, that he should fly, last flight. We got a lunar geologist. He's trained as a backup crew. It made a lot of sense, but it was hard personally to stomach for a while because my, my original backup crew for Apollo 14 is a crew that that might have, there was no guarantee, but it might have rotated to Apollo 17, and my lunar module pilot was an X-15 pilot. That's not a bad guy to have around over, watching your right side over there. There's a wingman over there. Jack Schmidt was not an aviator. He learned to fly. He was not an aviator, but he was, he was, he was, uh, did a wonderful job. He, he learned well. He had a good technical background as a geologist. He did an outstanding job, and, uh, and, and, and when we were literally on the surface, he was in his test tube. Lunar geologist on a lunar surface, he was in a test tube. So he looked at the microgeology, and although I, we, I studied, the rest of us all studied geology and went on field trips and what have you, uh, I was a macrogeologist. I didn't really care where that pebble came from. I cared where the mountains came from. So between the two of us, we were able to put a picture together, and I think it worked out very well. And there was of all the experiences Cernan had during the Apollo 17 flight, perhaps his most intense was landing the lunar module on the moon in that deep valley. Here's how he described the landing. You know, you, there's, there's, you, you, can, you never could train for the entire mission. You could never train for the emotion of that 14 minutes of descending on the surface of the moon. I mean... It, in a simulator, you know, if you made a mistake, if you ran into a problem you couldn't handle, if you were going to spin, crash, and burn, you hit the freeze button, you go out, talk to the folks, have a cup of coffee, and say, well, I could have done it this way, I could have done it that way. There is nothing that can prepare you for the real world until you're in the real world. Well, there's a lot of things you can prepare it for. It's your commitment. You want to know everything you can. You want to be as prepared as you can. You want to be as determined. And, and I, I've always said, I didn't go to the moon not to come home. That was, that was not my plan. I, I knew that the possibilities were there. But So when, and when I was coming down, for instance, coming down on a descent itself to the surface of the moon, very dynamic, noisy, people are talking to you. Uh, vibration, lots going on. Uh, you're coming down on your back. You really don't see the moon until you're, you start down from 50,000 feet and you really don't pitch over. And, and you're flying a vehicle for the most part and you, you pitch over at 7,000 feet and we landed 
in a valley that was surrounded by mountains on three sides higher than the Grand Canyon is deep. And all of a sudden, bang, you are down among them. And, and the ground's telling you things. Your partner's giving you numbers. And you're looking out the window. And you're, you're flying needles. And watching what the radar is telling you. You get down to about 200 feet. And you get to what we call the dead man's curve. You're going to land one way. If the descent engine quits, you're going to land. Because you don't have time to separate the two vehicles, fire the S engine, and get out of there. You've got to come down fast enough so you don't run out of fuel but you got to come down slow enough so you can stop your rate of descent. About 80 feet, you run into dust. You go IFR. You can't really see much of anything. And at that point in time, I, you know, the ground can't tell you anything. I, I, told, I told my partner, Jack Schmittner, I said, I don't want to hear anymore. Yeah, yeah, you, you're, you're eyeballing. You're, you've made a determination where you're going to land. And you know how much fuel you got. You're committed at that point in time, and uh, you, you, you touch, you get an indication that you're in a, with about three meters of the surface by a little light that goes on. As soon as that happens, you shut down. Shut the engine down, because if you don't and you land with the engine running, the back pressure, they determine the back pressure might be so great it would blow up the lunar module when you land it. So, you know, you're not going to let that happen either. And when you touch down, you shut the engine down and plunk, the dust is gone. The vibration is gone. The, the, the noise is gone. Nobody's talking. And all of a sudden, you realize for what could have been 10 seconds or 10 minutes, I don't know, that you are now seeing what has never been seen with human eyes before. You are now where no human beings have ever been in the history of mankind ever before. And, and the first thing you do is listen and look at the gauges and make sure you didn't break something. Because if you did, you're going to have to get it out of there in a hurry. And once you're happy with that, and all that happens in a matter of seconds, quite honestly, uh, you tell, tell the ground that uh, the Challenger has landed in the Valley of Taurus Letro. And from then on, it's, it's, it's three days, and a lot of people say, well, you know, did you think you weren't going to ever get, did you ever think about it might not lift off? You're there. You shut the engine down. You, you know, you, you, you turned everything off except the environmental control system. Do you think it's going to start? Do you think it's going to work? Do you think that you power down all the avionics and the computer because you don't have enough battery power to keep them running? No, you don't worry about that until the time comes. You are there. You made a commitment. If you were worried about that, you shouldn't have gone. You should have stayed home. And, and so I think all of that plays into your Navy training. Uh, you know, I, when I was coming down on a descent, it was me. Nobody else was going to help me. They were in the, the ground couldn't fly my airplane for me anymore that could make a night carrier landing for me. It was going to happen, and the guy on the right was giving you some information. That's fine, but he wasn't flying. I was. You know, you got more technology, by the way, in your iPhone today than I had both of my hands when I landed on the moon, but that's what I had to work with. And that's why I, I've often compared it to a night carrier landing. It's just you and your maker. If it's going to happen, you're going to make it happen. And, and without question, I think it goes back to the training that gave you not just the opportunity, but the determination to, to, to come back aboard ship, particularly at night. And that's no small feat. Even today, we're watching young pilots do it hands off. It's crazy. Uh, but, but that's very comparable. And, and what is it that, 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 that Although things are happening faster and are landing on the moon, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. There was no question in my mind. And if a problem occurred and I had to board, I was prepared to do that. Just like you're prepared to take it around aboard a carrier at night if it isn't a perfect landing. But this time we didn't have a chance to come around again. So the determination and the commitment that you had was to do it right the first time because you're not going to get a second chance. And, 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 and that relates very closely to the attitude you had to have and the training you had as a naval aviator. Is that what makes a difference? 
uh, is, is that we didn't have a 12,000 feet of concrete to land on on the moon, but you don't abort at aboard ship either. Is that what makes the difference? Is that why five out of six lunar landings were commanded by naval aviators? I'll let someone else figure out the answer to that one. Cernan's role as commander of Apollo 17 closed out the Apollo program's lunar exploration mission with a number of record-setting achievements. During the three days of Apollo 17's surface activity, that was December 11th through the 14th, 1972, Cernan and Smith performed three EVAs for a total of about 22 hours of exploration of the Taurus Latrobe Valley. Their first EVA alone was more than three times the length astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin spent outside the lunar module on Apollo 11. During this time, Cernan and Smith covered more than 35 kilometers or 22 miles using the lunar rover and spent a great deal of time collecting geologic samples, including a record 34 kilograms or 75 pounds of samples, the most of any Apollo mission. These samples would shed light on the moon's early history. Cernan piloted the rover on its final sortie, recording a maximum speed of 11.2 miles per hour or 18 kilometers per hour, giving him the unofficial lunar land speed record. As Cernan prepared to climb the ladder to the limb for the final time, he spoke these words, currently the last spoken by a human being standing on the lunar surface. Houston, before we uh, close out our EVA, probably one of the most significant things we can think about when we think about Apollo is that it has opened for us, for us being the world, a challenge of the future. The door is now cracked, but the promise of that future lies in the young people, not just in America, but the young people all over the world, learning to live and learning to work together. In order to remind all the peoples of the world, in so many countries throughout the world, that this is what we all are striving for in the future. America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and towards Luttrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. Godspeed to crew of Apollo 17. Cernan's status as the last person to walk on the moon means Purdue University is the alma mater of both the first person to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong, and the most recent. Cernan was one of only three astronauts to travel to the moon on two occasions the others being Jim Lovell and John Young. He is also one of only 12 people to have walked on the moon. In 1976, Cernan retired from the Navy with the rank of captain and went from NASA into private business, becoming executive vice president of Coral Petroleum Incorporated before starting his own company called the Cernan Corporation in 1981. In 1981 and 82, Cernan joined Frank Reynolds and Jules Bergman on the extensive ABC coverage of the first three space shuttle launches. Many hours of these ABC broadcasts have been uploaded to YouTube in recent years. From 1987, he was a contributor to ABC News and the weekly segment of its Good Morning America program titled Breakthrough, which covered health, science, and medicine. In 1999, 
with co-author Donald A. Davis, he published his memoir, The Last Man on the Moon, which is about his naval and NASA career. He is featured in the space exploration documentary In the Shadow of the Moon, in which he said, quote, Truth needs no defense, end quote. And, quote, Nobody can take those footsteps I made on the surface of the moon away from me, end quote. Cernan also contributed to the book of the same name. Cernan and Neil Armstrong testified before U.S. Congress in 2010 in opposition to the cancellation of the Constellation Program, which had been initiated during the George W. Bush administration as part of the vision for space exploration with the aim of returning humans to the moon and eventually Mars, but was deemed underfunded and unsustainable by the Augustine Commission in 2009. Cernan paired his criticism of the cancellation of the constellation with expressions of skepticism about commercial resupply services and commercial crew development. But with the success of SpaceX, eventually Cernan changed his mind about the capability of commercial resupply services. In 2014, Cernan appeared in the documentary The Last Man on the Moon, made by British filmmaker Mark Craig and based on Cernan's 1999 memoir of the same title. The film received the Texas Independent Film Award from Houston Film Critics Society and the Movies for Grown-Ups Award from the AARP The Magazine. In his personal life, Cernan was married twice and had one daughter, his first wife was Barbara Jean Atchley, a flight attendant for Continental Airlines, whom he married in 1961. They had one daughter, Tracy, born in 1963. The couple separated in 1980 and divorced in 1981, but they still remained friends. His second marriage was to Janice Nana Cernan, which lasted for nearly 30 years from 1987 until his death. Cernan gained two stepdaughters, Kelly and Danielle. Cernan died in a hospital in Houston on January 16, 2017 at the age of 82. His funeral was held at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston. He was buried with full military honors at Texas State Cemetery, the first astronaut to be buried there in a private service on January 25, 2017. Cernan won numerous awards. I covered most of these in episode 187, so I will just mention a few here. The Naval Aviator Astronaut Insignia, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, NASA Exceptional Service Medal, Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy, U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame, and the International Space Hall of Fame. Since Gene is passed now, I thought it would be appropriate to end his biography with some life advice that was recorded from him, and it was intended for those young people thinking of a possible career in aviation or space. But actually, this advice could apply to just about any career. Yeah. Uh, lessons I learned without knowing, and I think for the most part from my dad, uh, just uh, just don't ever give up. You know, good is never going to be good enough. Go out and do your best. Uh, and I said, as my dad told me, someday uh, you truly indeed may surprise yourself. Fate. Just don't don't turn down don't turn your back on opportunity, and don't worry about being the underdog. I felt like I was the underdog all my life in the space program, and I ended up going to the moon twice. Only a couple other people have done that. I commanded my own mission. I'm the only commander of an Apollo mission of any mission during those days, uh, who never had an opportunity to go to test pilot school. Unheard of. 
unheard of when I was selected for the space program, I don't know that anyone could have looked far enough in the future to see me as command of a mission. And it was finally, as far as I'm concerned, not the first, but as far as I'm concerned, it was probably the best. Uh, I tell young people to, uh, to always shoot for the moon. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. Always shoot for the moon because even if you miss, you're going to land somewhere among the stars. Don't wait for someone else to do it for you. Go out and make it happen yourself. Be in control of your own destiny. And have faith in a lot of people who are helping you to accomplish your dreams. The dreamers of today, dream, dream, dream. The dream I dreamed as a, as a 10-year-old. The dreamers of today are the doers of tomorrow. So be a dreamer. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 371 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 17, Commander Eugene Cernan. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First, a very important announcement. Thanks to my web host, GoDaddy, I have had to change my email address. So please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Our next episode will be posted in a couple of weeks, hopefully by September 16th. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 195 episodes are available on the Archive Podcast. Check that out, folks. That is a lot of episodes. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It's over at Podbeam. It should be available on most podcatchers as well. Today, we celebrate our Rocket Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for two consecutive years and receive a Rocket Emoji next to their name on the donors page. Okay, I had some afterthoughts on this episode. As you could tell, I had a bit of a conundrum on this episode as to what to include in Gene's bio. Gene has two other bios that are not complete, and they're in the archive already. And Gene has done so much, and he's had so much flight, that that's why he has those bios. So at first, I was only going to put in the Apollo 17 stuff. But his last bio was five years ago. So I felt like I needed to give at least the bare minimum of his previous flights. So that's what I did. If you have not listened to episode 187 recently, it might fill in a few blanks if you want to go back and listen to that. You can skip the parts you've already heard. Anyway, this was a rather difficult episode to do as far as editing and selecting what goes in and what stays out so what i I did the best i could folks (laughs) all right do you think gene has a preference for naval aviators (laughs) he makes a fair point that five out of six of the moon landers pilots were navy pilots and He compares the moon landing to a carrier landing at night. And I agree with him. For me, landing, landing just a a simple old Cessna that that I can halfway fly, landing that is the hardest part. And I still, I still mess up some hit, hit too hard on that thing. I don't do it that often, but boy, when I do it, I still tend to, to just stall just a little bit too early and go boom hit that pavement too hard. So I agree, 
landing is the hardest part. Okay, but I don't want to discourage, disparage any other service. I just say that uh, Gene makes a good point with his uh, naval aviators. But I did think of one question. Uh, I have always heard that the lunar, manual, lunar module was more like a helicopter or the flying bedstead, which they used to practice on which doesn't seem at all like a plane on a runway. But Gene, obviously, (laughs) knew much more about it than me, and that was probably a stupid question for me to ask in the first place. So, uh, trust Gene, don't trust me. I'm just thinking out loud. Did you enjoy Gene's description on lunar descent to landing? I really like that. It was a little long, maybe, but I think the clip really got into his thought process during the most stressful time of the mission. I really enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And we hadn't played that before, and I hope you got something out of it. Did you know about Gene and his wife's effort to keep 17 on the books and to make sure he was getting good hardware? You see, Gene, Gene plans ahead. <laughs> he thinks ahead. And he's, he got into his head. He might not be getting the best spacecraft since they had been uh, letting go so many people. And his was the last one to come through. So he thought they might get a little lax on that spacecraft. So... He wanted to make sure everybody's spirits were up and they were into this thing. So, he didn't rely on someone else to do it for him. He took it upon himself and with his wife. They went out there and campaigned and talked it up. And actually, I think they did make it happen. They did improve it. In fact, according to Gene, the Grumman managers told him before the flight that he had the best lunar module ever built. Now, moving on, for those interested in the farm project, we have actually got some progress to report this time. I'm so pleased. They've been actually working at a snail's pace (laughs) on the basement block walls for about six days now. And have progressed to almost the full height all the way around the perimeter of the house. Now, they haven't done any brickwork done. The whole basement area is going to be bricked on top of the block. So, they haven't done that and started that yet. But, boy, do I find it encouraging to finally see walls go up. It's, It's Actually, I'm starting to believe that I have a house under construction now, as shocking as that may seem. So I've been without a house here for, it's been since uh, March 21st. We haven't had a house. So uh, this has been a while for me not to have a house to live in. Anyway, I may just, I probably, here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to put up a picture of their progress so far and i'm going to put it on patreon i I want to keep it off the major platforms like facebook and twitter so it's not going to get a bunch of silly comments it's it'll be just something that those interested can look look at if they want to and you can see it on patreon you just go to uh patreon Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Space Rocket History. And that'll be my page. And you'll be able to see the post that I put up there. And you'll be able to see a bunch of posts that I put up there for all for my Patreon listeners. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had a few contributions and some increases and decreases on Patreon. I would like to thank Joe P. from Michigan, who sent in another donation and moved to the mere ISS level. 
Johan B. from Denmark donated at the Apollo level. Juan E. from Spain donated at the Soyuz level. George L. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level. Henning K. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level. Thomas W. donated at the Sputnik level. Martin G. from London increased his pledge on Patreon to the Artemis level. And Grant M. from Australia increased his pledge on Patreon to the Starship level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors sadly dropped to 248. Our total donors for the year have reached 375 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. As usual, this time of year, it is the dog days of summer. And this is our weakest time for financial support. In August, there was a 25% drop in funding, coupled with July's 35% drop. It's a little bit discouraging over here. So, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Mike had a birthday since our last episode, and we tried to celebrate the best we could with the current pandemic still affecting our lives, as I'm sure you all have experienced as well. With our farm project, we are seeing some progress. We have most of our basement walls done. The heat has definitely been a factor in productivity. Now, for the SRH drawing. Remember, the winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet, magnet, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jim Foster. Jim Foster, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, remember that's spacerockethistory at gmail.com, to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 375 who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, the documentary Untold Story of the Last Man on the Moon, Grant Stoltz interview with Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Press Kit, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, Apollo 17 Mission Report, Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 372 posted by September 16th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.